This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. This Monday marked 100 years since Austria-Hungary officially declared war on Serbia, igniting the First World War. It was one of the largest and bloodiest military conflicts in human history. Today I'll be joined by historian Margaret McMillan to examine the unique series of events that led up to the war and how it changed the world. And she just turned 90 after 50 years of being cancer-free. We'll talk to Ursula May about what it was like to be diagnosed with breast cancer at a time when the treatments were disfiguring and debilitating and how she thrived after a terminal diagnosis. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Japanese women have once again taken the longevity title. According to figures released this week, a Japanese woman born today can expect to live 86.6 years. That's longer than anyone else on the planet. In second place are women in Hong Kong, whose life expectancy hit 86.57. Here in Canada, women can expect to live 84.6 years, while the average for men is 80.4 years. And if you want to be one of those lucky people to live past the average life expectancy, it turns out even the tiniest bit of exercise can help you get there. A large 15-year study published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology finds that running as little as five minutes can significantly lower your risk of dying prematurely. As a group, runners also gained about three years of extra life compared to those adults who never ran. Remarkably, these benefits were about the same no matter how much or how little people ran. The Scottish government is predicting that the number of seniors living alone will rise dramatically over the next 25 years. The National Records of Scotland estimates that by 2037 there will be 46,000 men and 108,000 women aged 85 or above living alone in Scotland, something that will certainly have an impact on the healthcare system. Finally, the last surviving member of the Enola Gay crew that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945 has died. During a public forum in October 2011, Theodore Van Kirk, the Enola Gay's navigator, said after dropping the bomb, the crew looked back and saw Hiroshima was pulverized. We could not visualize anything in the city of Hiroshima whatsoever. The city was covered with a cloud. Van Kirk, also known as Dutch, died Monday of natural causes at the retirement home where he lived in Stone Mountain, Georgia. He was 93. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's the mother of all milestones. 
This week, Princess Margaret's oldest surviving breast cancer patient marked 50 years cancer-free. At the same time, Ursula May also celebrated her 90th birthday, which came half a century after she was diagnosed and told she had only three months to live. Ursula dropped by our studios looking very healthy and very happy. For all these years, the word cancer is not in my vocabulary, and I don't think about it. I'm just happy to be here and and live. Let's go back there, because, I mean, I'm sure that this anniversary must make you think about how far you've come. Yes, I've been thinking about it now a lot. So, what have you been thinking? I'm so thankful to have the children grow up with me and not that it not happened as I was told. What were you told? I was told um, by the surgeon when I woke up for the first time in pain, he said, I'm so sorry, I had to take everything out. And that was it. And then afterwards, I was told that I had uh, cancer and that there was no chance the cancer had spread. They told you you had three months to live, right? Yes. Well, it was an aggressive type. So what was the treatment for you at that time? Um, First, it took a long time for the uh, cut to heal. It was a radical mastectomy. Yes. Then they gave you this cobalt radiation. Yes, that that was, um, I had to meet a doctor who looked after the radiation patients. And he was looking at my paper and he said, if I give you the, the amount of radiation that is common, then you have no chance, not beyond the three months. But in, we have given in Europe a larger doses with uh, success. So he wrote a higher dosage. In those days, we weren't, nobody talked about it. And, and I didn't know what it was. And, uh, you know, and I didn't know what could be done. I was not informed or anything. You're given this horrible diagnosis. You're a young woman with three small children. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know when this happens to mothers, that's their first thought is their children. Yes. I was wide aware of that, that my children were in danger of losing the mother. And um, within our friends, I just, we were, I was talking to my husband and we were asking these friends, would they take the children? Because my husband would have to work, and uh, he could not look after them. And I explained to him, you can have them on weekends or what. So I planned the future for the children. And how did that make you feel? I don't know. It was just out of necessity. I mean, it was uh, it was like a fight. You never expected to see your children grow up. 
one of the like the, there were volunteers who would um, drive us, pick us up. She stopped the car and and she said, "I'm so sorry. I'm not supposed to talk to you, but um, I can see myself sitting there in the corner." like you sit now with the arm held in pain and crying. That was me 10 years ago. And I said um, to myself, 10 years? Well, then Michael would be 16 and Andrew 15. Oh, that, well, 10 years, if she can do it, I can do it. That gave me a push. And uh, it was said that mothers with small children have a better chance to heal than others because you think of your children. As you were getting better, I'm sure there's also, I know, there's a lot of anxiety involved. You keep wondering, is it going to come back? How much time do I have? Oh, yes. Well, that was worry all the time. It it bothered me a lot later, but I tried not to think of it because it was the most terrible thought. I just wanted to get better. I just wanted to get out of everything and live. Now, the survival rate overall for breast cancer is 89%. Yeah, that amazes me. And what do, would you like to say to to women who are diagnosed now and who are in that same cycle of worry, you know, worry, hope? I think I would say don't worry. Have faith in, in the treatment because it is now so much better. And don't worry. Just try to get better. Ursula May, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. A hundred years ago this week, the Great War began. It was one of history's largest conflicts, killing millions of people. What led to it and how did it change the world? In just a moment, we'll learn more from historian Margaret McMillan. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. This week we marked the 100th anniversary of the First World War and interest in the Great War has never been higher. Thousands packed a ceremony at Varsity Stadium to remember the conflict that changed the world and killed 16 million people, including 60,000 Canadians. It was the culmination of a two-day conference organized by the Bill Graham Center and the Monk School at the University of Toronto. Historians say the war's aftermath still reverberates today in some of the ethnic, national, and religious crises being played out around the world. Noted World War I historian Margaret McMillan told me the parallels between 1914 and 2014 are very unsettling. We see a breakdown in, in relations between peoples on the ground. We see areas which are troubled, which have the, the potential of bringing in outside powers. I mean, the South and East China Seas are dangerous because their local conflicts get overlaid by much larger conflicts. And I think we're seeing the same thing in the Middle East, I mean, local conflicts, again, which have the potential to bring in great powers. And so I think we should be worried. I don't think we should be totally pessimistic. I think there are grounds for hopes. But no, it's not, a, not an easy time we're living through. 
Earlier, I talked with Margaret about her latest book, The War That Ended the Peace. The war changed the position of Europe in the world. Before the war, Europe was the most powerful, most advanced, most progressive, most prosperous part of the world. And Europe's steady decline really began as a result of the First World War. And you got the rise of the United States to world power. You got the appearance of communism in Russia with huge consequences for the 20th century. And I think you got the shattering of old societies. And and we're still, in a way, living with those consequences. When we study about the First World War, we're instructed about the causes of the war and told that really it was almost inevitable. I like to believe it wasn't inevitable. I mean, the trouble with the First World War is there were so many possible reasons for it because there were a lot of tensions. There was an arms race. There was a naval race between Britain and Germany. There was competition for markets, competition for colonies, nationalism. And so we tend to think the war was bound to happen just because there were so many reasons why it might have happened. And I don't like to believe that things are inevitable in human history because I think if we believe that, we give up and we don't try and avert catastrophe. You talk about it it wasn't just the larger events, but also the people involved had a huge impact on the way things turned out. And it was interesting. You talk about the crisis at Fashoda where war was averted because Queen Victoria sort of said this would be a dumb thing to go to war over. Yeah, and that's that's also one of those interesting things. I mean everybody thought a war, if there was going to be a big war, would be much more likely between France and Britain. I mean, they've always hated each other. Not always, but they've been enemies for a long time. And they fought in Canada. They fought in India. They fought around the world. And the two countries, Britain and France, nearly came to war in 1898. And yes, you had people on both sides who said, this is crazy. Why are we fighting over a very small village in the South Sudan? On the other hand, uh, as another part of the what if with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, who came to power kind of unexpectedly, you sort of say, well, what happened if he hadn't, if his father had ruled instead of him for another two decades? I, mean, I think it's so interesting. The role of accident in history is so important. Um, you know, who gets run down by a bus and who doesn't? I mean, Winston Churchill was nearly killed by a car in, in, on Fifth Avenue in New York in the 1920s. And think of what the history of the Second World War had been, or if Hitler had been killed in the trenches in the First World War, as he very nearly was. And yes, I think, I think the accident of Wilhelm II coming to power was hugely important. When you look at the role of individuals, I mean, is that sort of the uh, great man theory of history and is that sort of coming into vogue now a little bit more in historical circles? That's such an interesting question. I mean, everyone's been so rude about the great man theory of history and said this is nonsense that history is just made by great men or by great women and, of course, lots of other things make history. But I think it does sometimes matter who's in office at a particular time and who is there to shape the destiny of the country. I mean, I think it really made a difference, for example, that Hitler took power in Germany, or it made a real difference that Stalin took power in Russia. And So you can't separate these people from their times, but you can't say that they don't matter. I think in some cases, the individuals can matter a lot. Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. You say he was the one man that could have prevented the war. He was in a position while he was alive to prevent war and had done so. He was the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, which was this huge collection of countries in the center of Europe. And every time there'd been a crisis before, Archduke Franz Ferdinand had, had been a voice of moderation and said, look, we can't afford to go to war. It'll be the end of the monarchy. And of course, in that, he was absolutely right. And so by removing him, the assassins, when they killed him in, on June 28, 1914, removed a man who might have prevented Austria-Hungary going to war. What about this business of the role of honor of uh, countries going to war because they thought they couldn't back out? I think this still matters in international relations. If you are a power, 
you have to feel that other people are going to believe that you have the power. Other people respect you. Otherwise, what makes you powerful begins to be chipped away at, begins to be attenuated. Fast forward again uh, to the assassination. Uh, you draw a parallel between the hot-headed nationalist terrorists who assassinated the Archduke and al-Qaeda. Well, there's something similar, I think, in them. I mean, these people are fanatics. And they believe in causing absolute mayhem. They believe in destroying those they see as, as, as oppressing them. And they don't really stop to think of the consequences. And they were also international. I mean, just as al-Qaeda or other types of terrorists today have international links, so they did in the early 20th century. And they copied each other. They borrowed weapons from each other. They followed each other's model. And so I think there is an interesting parallel there. And what, what should we learn from the earlier example? Well, what you learned from the early example, and I, and I think we should be doing it now, is, is that what you need is really good police work and you need good international cooperation because it's difficult often to catch these people, particularly, of course, if they have the support of powerful forces in the background. And the Serbian terrorists who killed the Archduke in Sarajevo were being backed by at least some elements in the Serbian government. And I think it, you know, if the Serbian government could have been persuaded to stop doing this, it would have been a very good thing. But it needed international cooperation. As a takeaway lesson from the book, is it that there's always a choice, nothing is inevitable? I think that's the lesson I would like to have people take away because I think it is so dangerous to throw up our hands and say nothing we can do, it's bound to happen. And I think there are almost always choices. You can always say, no, we're not going to go to war. Okay, Margaret McMillan, thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. That interview first aired in November 2013. The War That Ended the Peace, The Road to 1914, is published by Alan Lane. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Tony Bennett, the iconic crooner, is celebrating his 88th birthday today. Coming up, we'll hear the first single from his exciting new album. Stay with us. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City. The The Museum of the City of New York and the Barrio Museum are teaming up for an event called Uptown Bounce. Summer nights at 104th and 5th. For the next two Wednesday nights, live music, gallery talks, and art-making workshops will take place on the museum's front terraces. In Los Angeles, there's a new exhibition called Chivalry in the Middle Ages. It traces the origins of chivalry, which first developed as a code of honor for knights at war. The exhibit is at the Getty Center. To London, England, where the Oscar Wilde classic The Importance of Being Earnest is at Harold Pinter Theatre. And in Florence, Italy, an exhibition called Radical Femininity features three prominent women artists from the 1960s and 70s. The sculptures and paintings of Lee Lozano, Alina Shapotsinikov, and Evelyn Axel are on display at Gucci Museum. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Gets too hungry for dinner at eight. Today, the one and only Tony Bennett is celebrating his 88th birthday. He's enjoyed an incredible singing career that has spanned over seven decades. And in true Zoomer fashion, he's showing no signs of slowing down. 
In fact, in just over a month, Tony Bennett will release his 57th studio album. Titled Cheek to Cheek, it will feature recordings of jazz standards he's made with pop star Lady Gaga. The two first collaborated for his 2011 platinum-selling album, Duets 2. Bennett says his fans are going to be impressed with how she sings. And here's a taste right now. It's the first single from the album, a cover of Cole Porter's Anything Goes. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked down as something shocking. Now heaven knows anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use for letter words, writing prose. Anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today. And days bright today, and black's and most guys today, the woman prize today Are just silly gigolos And though I'm not a great romancer I know you're bound to answer when, when we propose Anything was Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga with Anything Goes. It's the first single from Bennett's upcoming album, Cheek to Cheek, to be released this September. Bennett is celebrating his 88th birthday today. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandrieu. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.